Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis, from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute for medical advice of physicians. You may review the National Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at nof.org. Hello, and welcome to Bone Talk. My name is Claire Gill. I'm the CEO of the National Osteoporosis Foundation, and I'm delighted to be joined today by two wonderful people who are going to help talk with us about a very common topic within the osteoporosis field, which is vertebral compression fractures. Joining me today are Dr. Eris Weiss. He is an expert in the field of interventional pain management and is the medical director of Northwest Pain Management in Bangor, Maine. He specializes in minimally invasive spine care and interventional pain management and is board certified diplomat of the American Board of Anesthesiology in both the practice of anesthesiology and the subspecialty of pain medicine. We're also delighted to be joined today by Karen, who sought out treatment at Dr. Weiss's Northeast Pain Management Office and was treated by one of his colleagues. And like many of the millions of Americans in the United States who suffer from osteoporosis, Karen found out that she has osteoporosis after a fracture. So she's been gracious enough to join us today to talk about her experience. And Karen is a resident of Skowhegan, Maine, and again, was seeking out treatment for a severe back pain that she had when she was brought to Dr. Wise's attention with one of his colleagues. So thank you both for joining us today. Let's start with you, Karen. And can you describe a little bit about how you hurt your back and what kind of symptoms you were experiencing that led you to kind of eventually go to Dr. Weiss's practice? Sure. Back in December, I went to Florida because I used to house sit and take care of animals. You know, I was a specialist. You know, I took care of animals while I house sat. And so I flew down to Florida and I was taking care of this young dog that I wasn't used to. And I was out walking early one morning and the dog saw another dog off leash and decided to take off. Well, I wasn't going to let the dog go because that's my job. So I hung on and I went down flat face first onto the oh, ground. No. I still, oh, I still no. have the dog, <laughs> but I, it happens in seconds. Yeah. But I yeah. felt something in my back and that second I was falling. And I thought, oh no, I hurt my back. And I had just had complete knee surgery two months before. So my legs weren't that strong enough to get up. Anyway, I found help because I'm out in horse country down in Florida in Wellington. And when they were pulling me up, I thought, oh, no, my back. What is wrong with my back? Because I could hardly move. And the pain was excruciating. So the people I was house-sitting for hadn't left yet. So they gave me some pain pills, which is Celebrex, because she said, oh, they work great. And, you know, my primary doctor wasn't down there. So I, you know, took that. And my cousin, who has back problems down there, bought me a back brace. And so for a week, I continued to house sit and pop pain pills, which isn't good, and wear the back brace. The pain was so excruciating bad that it was you know, you hated to even use the bathroom because any 
bends or, you know, if you didn't stay straight, it hurt. Yeah. So I did that through the week. And when the people came back home, I went to my cousins and I said, I got to find out something's wrong with my back. So, you know, you go to a walk-in clinic and they took an x-ray, but didn't see anything. And I thought, (laughs) you know, how can it be this painful and you don't see anything? So I flew home with a lot of pain pills and my back brace. And the next day I went to the hospital in Skowhegan. And you got to understand in Maine is a different place than like the bigger town. And Maine is just a different place. So we don't have a lot of great doctors here and they're scattered along, you know, they're scattered throughout the state. Usually I drive to Bangor, which is uh, about an hour away from Skowhegan to go to my doctor's. But I was in so much pain, so I went into the emergency room and said, please, can you get me an MRI, which they did the following day. And that was when they discovered that I had a compressed fracture vertebrae. And so, yeah, and they referred me to a pain doctor down here. And that doctor just kept me on Celebrex and said, rest. Mm. So, (laughs) but that's Sorry, can I jump in for a second? And, and Dr. White, yeah. so the compression fractures are very common, right? I mean, especially for people with osteoporosis. But what Karen experienced is even when she went to her doctor after that with the sort of continue to rest and take some pain medication, that's generally how it starts for people, right? Even before they make it to you, even before they consider surgery, there is that sort of cautious period of rest and take pain medicine. Am I right? And then that that's kind of how it goes before people, it's common for people to have to go through all of that before they get to the surgery stage? They often do, especially if they're not an established patient of ours. And with vertebral compression fractures, fortunately, most patients, the acute episodes of pain resolve on their own within four to six weeks within conservative care. They're able to taper off any pain medications that they run and they can begin physical therapy. Now, there are several other different treatment options out there. And really, it's not a one-size-fits-all type of algorithm. So usually, patients can be divided into different categories based on the severity of their symptoms and the duration of their symptoms. So which treatment is most appropriate depends on what category they fall in. So patients with mild to moderate acute pain usually are started off with oral pain medications. Mm -hmm. Acute pain we define as generally under four weeks duration. These are commonly Tylenol, ibuprofen, naproxen, over-the-counter type medicines, but can include stronger opioid type medicines as well that can be used for a short duration. Now, if patients have debilitating severe pain, Sometimes they require admission to the hospital for stronger IV pain medications, and sometimes they find that even with those, it's intractable pain or they have too many side effects. Sometimes in the hospital, they are offered balloon kyphoplasty, a procedure which I'll discuss a little bit more later on, and they use that in the hospital setting. Now, sometimes they come to us before they make it into the hospital, but they're almost there. And that's where we step in with the little bit more invasive, but still very minimally invasive balloon kyphoplasty procedure. And we keep them out of the hospital that way. There are a subset of patients in the other category where pain may persist for a longer period of time, sometimes months. And this can indicate that a fracture is unhealed or slowly healing. And if they have this persistent pain that does not improve with time and with conservative of care, these are great candidates for balloon kyphoplasty. 
Right. I'll just take one minute to discuss one other thing that she had mentioned with the back bracing. This is one thing that's very popular, but definitely unproven. We do not typically use bracing for the management of pain with patients with compression fractures. If it is used, it should only be used to relieve pain in the acute and subacute phases because longer use will actually contribute to atrophy of the core muscles, and this can be counterproductive in the long run. Well, that makes sense. Right. And it it would seem more that back braces would be beneficial if it were a muscular type of pain versus an actual fracture, right? But no one knows, I guess, until they kind of get through all the tests what that is. So you're right, though. I think we hear from a lot of patients who go directly to, oh, I put on a back brace and I thought I'd be okay. And then it didn't happen. So I want to get back to you again, Karen. I just wanted to kind of interject with that. Like as painful as your experience was, it's pretty common, right? That you were still in that acute stage, those four weeks to a month out where, you know, you, like other patients, were basically just suffering and sort of trying to figure out how can I get this to stop? So then once you got back and was it your primary care that referred you to the pain specialist? How did you know to go to Northeast Pain? (laughs) Well, what happened was like, so a month went by and, you know, you're waiting to get better, but instead I was getting worse. And probably because of what Dr. Y said, you know, when you just can lay in bed and it's too painful to get up and move around, then your muscles do get softened and you do get weaker. So I wasn't getting better. And I thought there's got to be an answer to this problem besides rest, because that's not doing a thing. And a month went by and I'm one of those people that don't want to sit around and do nothing. And I just said, this life is not for me. I can't be bedridden. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I had been to Dr. Wise's practice for ambulation. And so I knew them, but okay. I went online. I went online and I was looking for answers. What else can be done right. for this problem that I have? And I saw the balloon chiroplasty. And I thought, wow, okay, that sounds like it would do the job. And it made sense the way it was described. So I called up Dr. Wise's practice and I said, do you by any chance do chiroplasty? And they said, yes. And I said, oh, good. (laughs) So I made an appointment on my own to go up there Mm -hmm. and have it done. So, so yeah, you've done the research where, again, many people don't know to do that research themselves, right? Right. So that's how I ended up going up there and doing it. And I was a patient, you know, but this was like two years ago that I had ambulation. So it was, you know, but I still knew about their practice. And you have the added added problem of being, you know, during we're all in the midst of this COVID crisis, this COVID-19 pandemic for people sort of avoiding hospitals and avoiding treatments and stuff. Did any of that concern you, Karen, as you were sort of approaching this? Or was it just so painful you were like, I have to get this done? Well, at the time, see, I had this done, uh, it was either the end of January, the 1st of February. So we didn't really know about COVID that much. I mean, we weren't shutting down everything, you know, knew that much about what was going to happen. But, you know, so at the time that I had it, I wasn't concerned. But I've been to follow up and the way they've got the offices. So, you know, you don't really see any of the other patients and you sit in your car until they're ready for you and there's all kinds of shields you know between people and places and so you know you really you don't go into a waiting room anymore basically right right 
So that's good. So, so let's yeah. get back to a little bit more. Sorry, uh, Dr. Weiss then. So explain to us then, you know, when a patient like, so Karen is unusual in that she had done some, well, I mean, not unusual. You tell us, is is it normal for patients who have done a little bit of, of research themselves <laughs> and come in suggesting to you what they think they'd like done? Or, you know, are you getting more just patients coming in confused and they don't know what the options are? How would you, how do you go about treating both of those types of patients? Yeah, so the latter is more common. They come in basically at the request of their PCP or the hospital, and they don't really know anything about what's coming or what they're even dealing with. So a lot of those patients will come in with the already with the diagnosis of a osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture. So at that point, it's assessing the patient for their severity of symptoms, their duration of symptoms, and then kind of laying out for them where we are, what their options are, what we would recommend, and kind of guiding them through that. If they come in with a little bit of an idea of what's been going on, what they think may you know, very well be coming up in terms of treatment, it just shortens the visit a little bit. And of course, we have to do our due diligence because there are patients with vertebral compression fractures that are old and healed are not good candidates for balloon kyphoplasty. So that's the only place where sometimes we get into a little bit of a miscommunication in terms of expectations where patients are diagnosed with an osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture on an x-ray. It ends up that it was years old. It's healed. It wouldn't be amenable. It's not painful at the moment. And there's some other source of their pain that we have to evaluate, diagnose, and treat. So those are the those are kind of the two main categories of patients who we see come into our office with this particular issue. And then can you describe a little bit more about balloon kyphoplasty, what the process is and what the, the cautions are, what the recovery looks like? How does that go about from start to finish? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's a very minimally invasive procedure we do right here in our clinic. It's used to treat fractures due to osteoporosis primarily, but can also be used to treat compression fractures secondary to cancer or non-cancerous tumors. So the procedure, its primary aim is to reduce pain and increase functionality. And this can happen fairly shortly after the procedure. It can be almost immediate in some patients. We do it under usually some form of anesthesia, usually a lighter anesthesia. Small cannulas are inserted through the skin of the back under x-ray guidance into the vertebrae with the fracture. Next, a balloon, a deflated balloon, is inserted through the cannula. A pump is used to inflate that balloon, which can restore some of the height that is lost during a compression fracture. The balloon is then removed, and an acrylic bone cement is injected under live video fluoroscopy, which is just a live x-ray. When it's injected, it's about the consistency of toothpaste, And then by the time the patient leaves shortly after, it's already hardened over 90% and is more solid than most of the other patients, the patient's other vertebrae. There's, in our clinic, there's no stitches. There's just band-aids to go home with. So there's no wound care. And there's some recovery from the anesthesia, waking up for the day. But otherwise, there's just some light activity restrictions to try to prevent any further fractures for a duration of four to six weeks until we see the patient in follow-up. So that's amazing. And so... Is there, so you said we, we wouldn't treat compression fractures that are old. This is just new compression fractures. But if someone, is there a possibility that someone has kyphoplasty more than once, not for the vertebrae that they, but say they fall again, break another vertebrae, are they candidates for that procedure again in the spine or you would only do it once in the spine or does it matter? They would be candidates again. We see patients unfortunately, that come in and sometimes have multiple compression fractures, multiple Mm -hmm. acute compression fractures. And so we will treat multiple 
at a given time. And also, unfortunately, once a patient has had one compression fracture, they are at a very much increased risk for future compression fractures. And so we often will see patients come in at different times with different compression fractures, and there is no limitation to the amount of balloon kyphoplasty procedures you can have. Obviously, the fewer, the better. We want to prevent fractures going forward, which is one of the big things, especially if it's our initial visit with the patient, it's their first ever osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture. You know, the best treatment is prevention often. So the biggest, one of the biggest things we can do besides treating their pain is educating them on why this happened, how we can prevent this, how important it is to diagnose and treat the underlying osteoporosis and help guide them in that direction. Yeah. And do you, do you do that in your practice too, Dr. Rice, or do you refer them back to their primary care or some other specialist to treat the osteoporosis? Yes, we refer them back to their primary care for that complete workup and treatment or to there are a few specialists in the area that specialize in the treatment of osteoporosis. Yeah, because many people don't recognize that. And that's obviously something that we spend a lot of time talking to people, the National Osteoporosis Foundation about is, yes, it was you realize you fractured after you fell from a standing height. Generally, that's what you know precedes having someone being diagnosed with osteoporosis. But again, fracture but gets fracture, they can fix the kyphoplasty and do that, but that's not going to mean that they're going to prevent future fractures if they don't go to do something that's to strengthen their bones and to create new lifestyle changes that will help them, as you say, forget, you know, not fracture again. So it's really important that those go hand in hand. Can you also speak just a little bit about there has been at least within our studies and stuff, we obviously talk about all FDA-approved treatments for osteoporosis, both the medicinal and the surgical or the procedural. This is a FDA-approved procedure for treatment of osteoporosis and fractures, but there's some controversy about worry about the vertebrae underneath where the kyphoplasty is inserted and that there might be some you know, degeneration of that. You know, how do you address that concern with your patients and do you talk to them about that? And how do you go about you know, explaining that? Yes, I always try to mention that. There's a theoretical concern that when you have a kyphoplasty at one vertebrae, that may increase the risk of future compression fractures in the vertebrae adjacent to it. The theorized mechanism would be that after you've had that cement injected into that broken vertebrae and it hardens, that vertebrae is now much stronger than all of the other vertebrae in the spine. And the forces that it once absorbed could be transferred to the nearby vertebrae, which could increase their risk of fracture. Now, most of the randomized trials have not supported this theory. Some have. So there's still, as you said, there's a little bit of controversy and debate going on. It's certainly not a settled matter. And for that reason, I personally will always include this topic when discussing risk and benefits to patients because I think it's important. It is a difficult topic to perform studies on because, as I said, Once you have one compression fracture, the risk of future compression fractures goes up almost exponentially. And so unless it was a very large risk for future fractures with the kyphoplasty, you would need a very, very, very large sample size of patients to study to even find a small difference. So that's why they're having trouble getting to the bottom of this, but there is ongoing research. But right now, I tell my patients that there is this theoretical concern. Some studies have shown that there may be a slightly increased risk, but there are many others that have shown no increased risk. And that's kind of where we're at right now in in the literature. Yep. And that's really important, I think, for all patients to understand, too, is that it really is a risk equation that they need to discuss with their physician because that's the decision that only they 
and their physician can make on, you know, what are the risks and what are the benefits and do the benefits outweigh the risks, et cetera. And that happens with all treatment, right? And that's something, you know, we try to explain as we talk to people about being advocates for ourselves in the healthcare field and, you know, making sure that we're asking the right questions and that we are making decisions, knowing all the facts. And then it's kind of up to us, you know, and I, I say to people, aspirin has side effects. You know, we really don't, we don't mm-hmm. talk about that kind of stuff, but everything that we have, you know, yeah. that, that helps us in our healthcare, unfortunately has side effects for some people. So it really is a very personal decision and you really have to weigh the pros and cons for you and your current situation. And obviously for Karen, you decided mm-hmm. it was definitely something you wanted to address and that, that you were comfortable with those risks. So tell us, um, Karen, from your experience, what happened then when you had the procedure and how did you recover from it? What was that like for you? Well, afterwards, you know, I had someone drive me home, but, you know, I felt fine, except I get nauseous when I get put under. <laughs> so I had dry heaves on the way home. But the other than that, everything was fine. I probably could have driven myself home. But it was about the fourth day, because it said it would take like maybe three or four days for it to start feeling anything. And, you know, I felt a little bit better. But, you know, I still had pain. I'd wake up and I still had pain. I thought, oh, no, I'm one of those people it didn't work for, you know. I go, oh, now what? But it was almost like magic. On the fourth day, I got up and it was like, I can walk. And, oh, my goodness, I have no pain. And, I mean, it really, it was like almost a miracle. And I thought, oh, wow, this is great. And I felt great ever since. So it's just, you you know, waiting for routine. Oh, yeah, I do. You know, I work part time. I hike, I swim. So but, you know, like you were saying, you have to be an advocate. And I know as we grow older, we you know tend to lose our balance and everything. So right. I signed up to take Tai Chi so I can you know, keep my balance. And I'm going to look into you. what we can do for osteoporosis, how I can help. I can do things to help it slow it down. Yeah. Or prevent well, you're doing all. really good as far as your physical activity, obviously. That's really important, you know, and particularly when you have suffered pain like that, you know, to be able to get back and being able to stay physically active is so important. Even as you go to find out what about your osteoporosis or what you need to do about it, that's something that is definitely going to be discussed by your doctor because it plays that and nutrition play an important role, obviously, in keeping our bones strong. But I'm delighted that you're not in pain anymore. But um, Dr. Rice, can we talk a little bit about, you know, when should patients be concerned, right? So if they happen to know they've fallen, you know, they fell, they're suffering some pain, like Karen did, I think most people would probably just, you know, again, grab some anti-inflammatory over-the-counter medication and kind of hope for the best. When would you say people should start to seek out, you know, treatment or, you know, a diagnosis? Like what would be the level that they should say, oh man, this is not going to heal on its own. I better go take care of this. Yeah. So that threshold is going to be a little bit different for every patient. And there is no wrong time to ask for help or for a second opinion. That is every patient's right at pretty much any point in time during their care. It's not their job to know necessarily when it's appropriate to be referred to a specialist or to somebody else. So if they ever feel as though their back 
pain is being undertreated or if they have questions that aren't being adequately addressed, that's a good time to ask to see a specialist. If they are having pain that is mild to moderate, but it starts to persist past the three to four week mark, I would definitely encourage patients to seek specific evaluation and treatment at that point because the longer this pain goes on, it creates more pain and it becomes more difficult to treat. And especially as we become increased in age and we possibly have some other comorbidities, our bodies can really suffer a great deal of atrophy and debilitation very quickly if we become inactive. So we definitely don't want to see people in bed without being able to get up for even days at a time. If it gets to that, that's the time. And, you know, If it's a severe, severe episode of pain that lasts for more than a day, that's a time to seek out treatment. If it's more of a mild, moderate, you're able to go about your daily routine for the most part, but it starts to drag on past the three or four week mark, that may be a very good time to go out and seek help. There's no right or wrong answer, but at any point in time, they should feel free to reach out and ask for help. That's good to know. And again, and really important for people to know too, that they don't have to continue to suffer and that it is, you know, Karen, as we were saying, you need to advocate for yourself. And if you're really feeling that this is not normal and it's not getting better, you know, you have the right to do that. Dr. Weiss, do you have any of your patients uh, like concerns again about now during the COVID crisis not wanting to come in? And is there any type of evaluation that you can do through telemedicine, which has become an option during this kind of pandemic for those, particularly those, I would say, over age 60, 65, who are at greater risk for COVID and may not want to go to an office setting? How have you all been dealing with that? Yeah, great question. So pretty much from the outset, we've been following all the CDC and governmental guidelines and implementing them as they arise and being more on the conservative side to make sure that, you know, the safety of our patients and the safety of our community at large are kind of at the forefront of everything we do. So we've pretty much implemented all the usual things that you'll see as you go around to offices and any place of business now. We do the screening for patients, for staff, mandatory face coverings, implementing all the social distancing requirements. We've communicated this to all of our patients, staff, and the community. We also have engaged in telemedicine, either through video or if patients aren't able to, which is certainly understandable, we can even do our initial evaluations over the telephone now. We're able to see a lot of their imaging if they've had x-rays or MRIs done digitally. So we can really get a lot done just through telemedicine now. And that can keep the traffic in the office down. And we have had several patients for kyphoplasties and for other procedures where we do all of the initial work, all of the initial evaluation over the phone or over telemedicine. And the first time we see them is actually in the clinic when they come in just for the procedure, which really limits their exposure to, you know, to potentially contracting any sort of virus. Yeah, that's great because, again, that is a concern and we want to, you know, do all that we can to ensure that patients who really need it are actually being seen and treated and not, you know, putting off something that, again, especially when it's causing that kind of acute pain or could lead to further fracture stuff, you know, making sure patients are aware that at least reaching out via phone or video to their to their doctor or specialist is so important, even during these times. Well, I find this fascinating. And, you know, we've done a lot about vertebral compression fractures within our organization and educational programs. We have brochures that are available about how to care for your spine and what the options are as far as treatment, what people need to know and what they need to ask their doctor. And it's just so helpful to hear directly from you, Karen, what your experience was. And from you, Dr. Weiss, who does this so often, 
often and see so many patients in need of this, what this procedure is and how it can benefit and what patients need to know about about spine fractures. Is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you think is, is worth sharing with our listeners? I think the only thing I would end on is just stressing how common osteoporosis is, how common osteoporotic vertebral compression fractures are. There are over 750,000 osteoporotic vertebral compression fractures every year. Over two-thirds, by some estimation, go undiagnosed, and it's just a real shame and a failure on a lot of aspects of our healthcare system that we really need to address this. And one of the ways that we can is through patient education and spreading the word that this is something that is common. This is something that if happens, there is treatment, there are options, and that they should you know, seek help with their healthcare providers as soon as they can. Thank you. Karen, any last-minute comments from you? My basically is to get the word out, like Dr. Y said, that the procedures that are available, and like in Maine, they're one of the few people in our whole state that does this procedure. And, you know, I was telling my other doctors about what I had done, and they all knew the word right off, but they didn't know, you know, where did you have it done? You know, they thought maybe I went to Boston or something. I go, no, no, just down the road, right here in Bangor. That's great. And, That's great. <laughs> so it's good to get it out that these things are available and, you know, right here, so they don't have to drive a long ways to get relief. So I think right. that's my biggest thing, why I got involved is I, you know, want people to know about it and what's available so they don't have to suffer. That's right. Well, good for you. And again, kudos, Karen, for being such an advocate for your own health and following up and really taking all the necessary steps. And I know you'll continue to seek follow-up and make sure that you prevent future fractures. So that's really important and good for you again. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And thank you, Dr. Weiss, for sharing your expertise with us today. We'll have links to the resources that we have available on our website that will be connected with this podcast, as well as information about Dr. Weiss's clinic and other resources available across the country where you can find out more. And for those of you listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bone Talk as much as we enjoyed talking with our guests, Dr. Eric Weiss and Karen. And if you did enjoy this episode, then please do two things. One, consider subscribing to Bone Talk so you never miss an episode. And two, please share with your family and friends so that we can help raise awareness about vertebral compression fractures and how to treat them. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the National Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved and or help fuel NOF's mission with financial support, visit nof.org.